Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those who I don't know or you don't know me, my name is Archie and I have the privilege of taking us through this great chapter. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very precious words of yours that we have just heard read. And we ask you that by your Holy Spirit, you enable them to work in our lives. Amen. Well, last week, we saw how special the church was. The church isn't an organisation. It's not even something that you attend or something you view online or even something that is there to benefit you. We saw that the church, we are a body or an organism, a living being that works together and every part of this organism is absolutely essential. Just as every part of my body works for the good of my body, so every part of the church is necessary, every part is essential, we all matter. And we saw last week that each and every one of us in God's church has at least one gift, and that gift comes not from ourselves, but is poured out from God himself. And so everyone matters, no matter what gift we have been given, and as we work together as the church here at Wild Street, the whole body benefits. And we saw last week as well those gifts that seem so unimportant, those gifts that are so often invisible to so many of us, are to be especially esteemed and worthy of honour. And so you can never say, my gift or gifts aren't needed. You can't say that the church has enough talent and that I am unnecessary. And likewise, you can never say to other people or think of it, I don't need your gifts. We already have everything that we need. And so our organism, our church, Wild Street, is unlike any group that exists in society. For in all groups there are insiders and outsiders. There is a hierarchy, but we are a body. We are this body. And so it seems so out of place in that passage that Danny started reading from today that the Apostle Paul should finish the chapter, a chapter which is about everyone being so valuable and every gift honoured with the last paragraph of chapter 12. Because now it seems that there is a list of the most important, of the more important gifts. From verse 27. Now you're the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration and all kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. See what's going on here? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then there's a whole list What's going on here? In the beginning of the chapter, it's everyone is equal and each gift is essential. And now at the end of the chapter, there is an ordering of the importance of gifts. It's almost as if you think, you Paul go off and have a cup of coffee after he finished verse 26 and forgot what he wrote and so wrote something different at verse 27. 
course, the answer to that is no. It's actually our thinking that is wrong, where we think that the ranking of the types of gifts are what he's on about. No, he's actually on about the benefit of these gifts for other people. And so Paul teaches us, as he finishes chapter 12, by saying, I will show you... This is, sorry, this is bouncing back a bit. I don't know if there's any way of fixing this microphone. Uh, um, still, I'll show you a still more excellent way. Thank you. body, I am incompetent with technology. Because what we are going to learn in chapter 13 is that what makes the gifts first, second and third is not the gifts themselves, but how they are used. Being used as a blessing to other people and used for love. And so as Nathan's already said to us, this chapter is a challenge, it's a rebuke first of all to the Corinthians and then to us, because we can so easily and naturally look for the wrong things. And as we look for the wrong things, we wrongly assess what's important, because it's so easy to be bedazzled by what's in front of us and not to see what's really important. So Paul calls the Corinthians and calls us at Wild Street to change our thinking and to follow this more excellent way. It is ever so easy to be besotted by gifts and skills and ability that people have, and we forget why the gift has been given by God. Because everyone, don't, doesn't everybody want to go to a church where the great sportsman are, or the famous politician attends, or the one who is the entertainer who's on the television? And so before we look more closely at love, I want you to answer which of these two people you would love to have sitting next to you in church. Who would you want to have around you in church? They are two fairly unknown people from the Bible and they both come from Luke's account of Jesus' life. First, there is a Pharisee, a moral leader of the nation and a very religious man. So from Luke chapter 18... Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the second is a poor widow from Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a widow and she put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Which one do you want to sit next to in church? The Pharisee, who did everything right, who gave to the church, 
so much money, the fine, upstanding, upright citizen that everybody would have watched as he came in. Or the widow, almost unnoticed. I hope I know who you went for. That is the widow. You see, we all know that there is something more than what you do or what you give that values you. And Paul says that thing is love. And so let's have a look at this more excellent way, this way of love, this way which is better than showy gifts. Listen to how the Apostle regards gifts, and these gifts here are important gifts, valuable gifts, but if they are not matched by love, listen to his assessment of them at the beginning of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and even if I deliver my body to be burned, but don't have love, I gain nothing. They are very impressive gifts, aren't they? The tongues of men and angels being able to speak so that other people who speak different language can understand what you're saying. That is no small thing. What a blessing that is. Or even more spectacular, being able to speak the language of heaven. These are a gifts that so many people would aspire to and certainly the Corinthians thought very, very highly of them. But if you have these gifts without love, the voice you speak is an offensive noise, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, or perhaps in our day, a loud leaf blower. Because when you open your mouth to speak these spectacular words, if they are not for the benefit of others, if they do not arise from love, they are just a terrible noise in the ear. And so what is the reason that you open your mouth for? Or the ability to prophesy, to know the mind of God and to bring it to the current situation, to have all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of knowledge that understands the world, you're absolutely sure of God's promises to you. All things that Paul says are wonderful gifts that can come only from God. But if you don't have love, or if you give away everything and even give up your life and become a martyr, if you don't have love, the assessment is you gain nothing. These things are of no value to you. You see, these are all gifts and skills and actions that you would say are truly Christian. But if they are not matched with love, if they are without love, the conclusion is I am nothing and I gain nothing. What a rebuke. Everywhere you would have looked in Corinth, you would have seen these remarkable abilities. But if they don't spring from love, the one with the gift 
is nothing and gains nothing. The gifts that they possess are totally wasted. You see, these things that the Corinthians and probably us consider so important and essential in being a Christian are nothing without love. What is essential is love. It is the necessary partner of the gifts. And if it is so important, we need to answer the question, what is love and why is it so important? And as you read on into verse 4, we're not given a definition of love, but a description of love. If you want a definition, the passage that Nathan gave us before from 1 John chapter 4 is a good place to start. But the description here is really helpful because a description is practical, a description is measurable, you can see it in action, you can see clearly ways to keep developing and what you should do next. Uh, A description is like a photo of what love looks like, not a vague dream or uncertain hope. Because people in our world so often use the word love without describing what it means and so you've got to add words to I love you. Well, what does love mean? You've got to say, I love you like I love chocolate cake. Or I love you like I love my football team. I don't suggest you use that of your spouse, maybe of people that you're acquaintances with. But a description of love gives you a solid and clear way of knowing what to strive for. Anna's description of the way that she has been loved wasn't that great because it says, oh, that's what it looks like. I can do that. I can strive for that. And so hear the description of love the Apostle gives in this chapter. Verse 4. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient and kind. In the midst of trials, especially when the trials come because you're not happy with another person, where they have done you wrong, the easiest thing is to walk away. But love will keep going. And in fact, doesn't just keep going because you can keep on going by protecting yourself so that you can hold tight to what you possess and you can put a shell around you to prevent yourself from further pain and you can just keep on going. No, what love does is it leans into and cares even more for the one who has hurt you knowing that that may expose you to even more pain. And love doesn't envy or boast. The lover doesn't say, look at me, or use the relationship to big note themselves, or set out to impress or assert its own rights. True love has no place for self-interest. Love isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't respond in grumpiness or out of spitefulness. It doesn't pay back when the love isn't returned. It doesn't say, that's enough, I can't keep doing it. 
It doesn't say, give me a break, or it doesn't say, I'm out of here. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't say with that self-satisfied pleasure, here we go again, as usual. It doesn't delight when another fails, but it does rejoice and praise and is thankful when the truth prevails. Love just keeps giving. Doesn't that description take your breath away? Doesn't it make you wish I loved more like that? Or make you wish to experience love like that? Wouldn't it be so wonderful if we all loved just like that? No wonder that at times when the Bible is opened at weddings, this is the most common chapter read. Because when it's read, it makes you kind of warm inside about these things. It says, oh, I hope this happens for this couple. But when we take this description seriously, it is so obvious how we fail. And so these lovely images and words are a challenge and a rebuke to us. They're a call to change, a change in the way that we relate to one another. And so my suggestion today is to pick one, just one of the descriptions of love and work on it to make it a habit. Habits normally take about five weeks to take root. And then after you've made it a habit, pick another description and work on that. And over time, God will grow that love in you and benefit the body and the body will grow in love as well. But having said that challenge, many of you here have experienced that full, dazzling and unlimited light and warmth of love because you have experienced the love of Jesus. Each one of us began life actively opposed to God or at least ignoring him, ignoring the one who made us and Jesus who died for us and as each day and each week and each year passed by in our rejection of God, instead of God writing us off or turning his back on us or even seeking our destruction, God was patient and God was kind. He didn't give us what we rightly deserved, but in kindness he held off his judgment so that he could draw us to himself and bless us. And Jesus, as he was mocked, as he died the death that he didn't deserve to die nor have to die, but in his death he took my sins that I deserve on himself. And on that day that he died for me, when they stripped him and mocked him and laughed at him, and gave him wine vinegar when he was thirsty so that they could laugh and mock him all the more. On that day when he could have at any point got out of the pain, but didn't for our sake, on that day his response wasn't rudeness or irritation or resentfulness. He didn't say, you'll get what's owing to you. Rather with his last dying, gasping breaths, 
He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This is love, vast as an ocean, and it's focused on you. Don't forget it and don't turn your back on it. There'll never be anything like this in your life. So you get the point. Love exists for the good of the other person and exists for the good of the other person at expense to yourself. So whatever gifts we have that have been given by God, they're to be used for the benefit of others and not ourselves. So tongues and knowledge and prophecy, even personal sacrifice can, and sadly sadly, without even realising it, be often used as a way to make us feel better about ourselves, to make us feel as though we're truly self-actualised or our potential has been unleashed. And if that is why we use our gifts, there is no benefit in that. But the way of love, the more excellent way, will use all gifts to serve other people and not ourselves. You see... The gifts that have been given to each and every one of you are not my gifts, but given so that I might bless other people for the benefit of others. There's a description of love, but why is love so important? That's where the Apostle finishes the chapter. Love is so important because it never ends. And so we need to step back from just looking at the gifts that are in front of us to thinking about their eternal value because gifts can dazzle us so that we look at them and not how they are being used to love. These dazzling gifts that shine for a moment cause us to pay attention to them and not think about what the lasting benefit of them is. So this happens actually when I see a shooting star at night. If you've ever seen a shooting star at night, it takes all of your attention away, doesn't it? You're looking up at the stars and you see the shooting star and there it is. And so after I've seen it, I rush inside and tell others what I've seen. But it's actually the stars that are arranged in all their beautiful twinkling positions every night. It's actually why I went outside to look at the stars in the first place. You see, it's the permanence that matters but it can be easily forgotten by that dazzling, flashing bit of brilliance. You see, you and I are beings that God has made for eternity, not just the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that he gives us here. We are eternal. And after our hearts cease to beat and our bodies decay, we will still be This life is so short from the perspective of eternity. And yet, in this short life, we make important those things that will pass away. See, I remember when the iPhone was released a decade ago, everyone's heart skipped a beat and we all wanted one. It was what was going to make our lives complete because for the first time in human history, you had access to all of the world's knowledge and it was in your hands. And if you brought one back then that offered so much, 
Where is it now? Probably in a hole in China. Been and gone, but it besotted us. You see, we want the immediate and we don't bother with what will take us safely to eternity. What we will still possess into eternity. But love, love lasts for this life, says the Apostle Paul, and forever. All of the other gifts, no matter what they are, are just like comrades in the march to eternity. These comrades will fall, all except love, which will keep going. So at the end of the chapter, Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be known fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, as valuable as they are today, will all pass away because they won't be needed in eternity. Because everyone, all of your experiences, are going to be much greater, much better than them. Or the way that Paul puts it in verse 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when eternity comes, the partial will pass away. You see, people are given wisdom and insights now, but come heaven, we will see and know and experience all things as they should be. And so there's no need for prophecy and tongues or knowledge then. And then he compares what we have now really as childhood compared to adulthood. When one of my daughters is very young, I can't remember which one it was actually, when she was a child... She loved trying to catch the wind. And so she'd run, up, run around and hold her hands up trying to catch it. And when that failed, she tried to catch it in a brown paper bag. It was great fun, but it was childish thinking, wasn't it? When heaven comes, though, all these childish things will be behind us. And, what is and, and how great adulthood will be. It's not just the loss of childhood simplicity but it's the gaining of so much more. Now, our understanding of reality and truth is like looking at our reflections, not so much in our glass mirrors, which are beautiful reflections, but you know how sometimes when you're walking past buildings in the city and there's a bit of metal on the outside and you can vaguely see your shape in it? That's the sort of image the Apostle Paul has here. You can sort of make yourself out, but in eternity... We'll see Jesus, the lover of our souls and our brother, face to face. And we'll gaze on God Almighty, God Almighty who's invisible to us now. And he will say, gee, it's great to have you at home, my son or my daughter. That is what eternity holds for us. 
That is the certain destination of the Christian. And I hope it lifts your heart and spirit and soul. For without love, this work of God, if you don't have that, the best you can hope for and look forward to is the grave. But with the work of God, it is to be fully known and loved by God in heaven for all of eternity. So in eternity, these will remain faith, trusting God, hope, which will be finally seen, and love, and the greatest is love. So why is love so important? It is the more excellent way. It also shows why the rankings at the end of that next week in chapter 14. But how we use them will be shaped by love. We will use the gifts given by God not for ourselves, but for others. As we do that, what a great body we will become. And how greatly Marubra and Pagewood and our world will be blessed, just as Rod spoke to us about before. And so the challenge for us is not to get grumpy when others shine more than you do because of their gifts, but thank God for it. To not be annoyed when I can't show all that I can do. To use my abilities to enhance my, my self-image and self-esteem rather than seeking the serving of others. That calls for great humility. This is the rebuke that comes to us of this lovely chapter. Keep working on love. Keep rejoicing in the love that's been described here that has come to you through what Jesus has done for you. And keep working and asking God to take that which he has given us change our hearts, change our very being, that we would seek to use them for the benefits of other people. And unlike other gifts, which are unneeded in eternity, love, love like that described in this chapter, will be the character of our relationships with one another and the character of the relationship into eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for us seeing this love described here showered upon us in what Jesus has done. Thank you so much for his great love, your great love for rebellious sinners. And we have to admit the times where we have used the gifts that have been so lavishly granted by you for ourselves Please be at work in us to grow us in love that we might be able to use these gifts in the service of other people and in doing that be a blessing to this congregation and to our world. Amen.